listening to One in Ten from National Children's Alliance. I'm Teresa Wiesar, your host. Join us as we engage in one-on-one conversations with the brightest minds in science, medicine, faith, communications, and the law. We'll discuss the path forward as we all work together to solve the greatest challenge one in ten of our children face, child abuse. Welcome to our pilot episode where we ask the question, is child abuse a public health crisis? Much of public discussion about child abuse frames it as a private tragedy, senseless acts by a few that cause profound suffering for many, seemingly inexplicable and intractable. Yet many insurmountable problems have been conquered through a public health approach. The eradication of polio, dramatic reductions in smoking, teen pregnancy, and drunk driving. What might happen if we applied these same public health strategies to child abuse? I spoke with Dr. Elizabeth Letourneau, director of the Moore Center for the Prevention of Child Sexual Abuse at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. She's one of the foremost experts on both the public health consequences of abuse and how the public health framework may be more useful to solve the problem, the same as any other public health crises. We discuss the research on the effectiveness of current approaches to child abuse and what we should be doing instead. Hi, Elizabeth. Thanks for joining us. It is my pleasure. So how did you come to this work? I mean, I've read your bio a little bit, but I don't think it really covered um, how you got from, you know, growing up and thinking you might be a doctor or a lawyer or a teacher or a ballerina or child (laughs) sexual abuse researcher. (laughs) Never a ballerina. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah, lack of grace is my middle name. (laughs) You know, I knew in high school that I wanted to be a psychologist. Um, I did not actually know what a psychologist really did. But um, but I felt like I it was a I took a class in psychology and and really liked it and so um, I declared a major you know pretty early in college and stuck with it knew I needed to go to grad school and you know quickly in graduate school realized that um, the clinical part of clinical psychology is not the part I really enjoyed um, but it, but it was the research part that I really enjoyed mm. and. I ended up doing some research with uh, some faculty, and they, you know, they focused on uh, working with people who had committed sexual offenses uh, to try to reduce their risk. And so I got involved in that really because of a love of research, not necessarily because this was a particular area that called to me. However, um, I, I also, uh, shortly after I started doing work in this, um, became a member of the Association for the Treatment of Sexual Abusers, or ATSA. And that organization uh, really works hard to pull in and keep students who show any interest in this field. You know, you know, you might imagine that that you know, working on the kind of offending side of child sexual abuse does not attract nearly as many um, uh, people as working on the victim side. And so, and so the Association for Treatment of Sexual Abusers put a high high premium on attracting and retaining students, and they were just such a wonderful group, warm and welcoming. Of, of clinicians and researchers and a, a very research-focused organization that they really pulled me in. I could have gone, I could definitely have gone in other directions, um, but really because of, of their influence, um, I stayed in this 
stayed in the setting and then just was able to find marvelous mentors along the way um, at the Medical University of South Carolina, where I went for my clinical internship and postdoc, and then um, and then funding partners to, to do this work. This is an area of work, um, you know, both working on the offending side of child sexual abuse and now focused more on prevention, where there's really not a strong federal funding mandate. Um, and yet we've been able, my colleagues and I have been able to find funding. And so it's it's been, um, you know, there was a little bit of happenstance really at, at the very beginning and then just uh, finding myself thriving in an area where not a lot of people are attracted to. So what are what opportunities there are, there's not a lot of other competitors um, and, and being successful in, in, in attracting um, some of the resources that are out there. And then too, you know, this is an area where I'm able to read um, as you must do as, as in your role, uh, Teresa, you know, about some of the kind of worst behaviors that, that humans can enact. And for whatever reason, I have a facility for leaving most of those details at the office. Um, and so that, that is in part is what enables me to stay in this field. There's other, there's other things that I can't leave at the office. I could never be a pediatrician because when I see a kid in, in like physical pain, for some reason, it's just, um, I find that debilitating myself. Um, but but this work, which I think a lot of other people would find very difficult to leave at the office, is something that um, I don't I don't have uh, much problem doing. Elizabeth, it seems like over the course of your career, it's also shifted from this focus on um, sexual offending to more of the front end in terms of primary prevention. What made you more or less shift your research interest to primary prevention over the, I mean, critically important work that you had done for a very long time in looking at offending behaviors? Yeah, that that has definitely been the arc of my career. And, you know, I started out working, uh, uh, looking at assessment and treatment of people who had already engaged in harmful sexual behavior and how can we... Um, uh, how can we um, better identify these individuals and then and then effectively um, work with them so that they don't do it again? Um, and, and as you said, now I'm working much more much more on the prevention end. In the middle, though, there was this transition period and or transition focus. It hasn't been a period really because I'm still doing it. Where I started looking at policies that the United States has enacted to try to address child sexual abuse and really evaluating what, what the effects of these policies are. And so then the policies that I've done the most work on are sex offender registration and public notification. Um, and within those policies, I've particularly looked at when we apply those policies to children, to people under the age of 18 who have been adjudicated or convicted of sex offenses, what really happens. And what I found is that they don't work and, and that my findings are, are quite consistent with other, other investigators. Sex offender registration and notification are fundamentally flawed and failed policies um, that not only don't do what they're supposed to do, which is to reduce the likelihood of someone engaging in another offense, but they also cause real harm to children. We can talk about that harm later if you're interested. Um, but that started me thinking, you know, if these don't work, and this is where we're putting so much of our resources, what does work? Um, and so I was starting to think along those lines, and then, um, you know, in a in a critical uh, uh, um, junction of time, it happened to be the case that as I was starting to think along these lines, uh, Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health posted a position for someone who had the kind of experience I had, expertise in you know sex offending and pedophilia, but who also was was 
um, very interested in primary prevention. This is a school of public health. Public health focuses on preventing bad things from happening in the first place, which of course is, uh, you know, better for potential victims and uh, frankly also more cost effective. And so there was this beautiful uh, timing of an available position uh, and and converging with, with my shift in interest. And so I applied for this position and got it and started here in 2011. And then along with this position came the resources from um, from our benefactor, Stephen Moore and his wife, Julia Moore, um, to really begin to do some of this work, which again is not well-funded at the federal level. Um, so most, most researchers in research intensive universities have to find funding, not only to do the science, but even to support their own salaries and the salaries of the people that work with them. And uh, Steve and Julia Moore's um, philanthropy, you know, gave us, give us, still gives us a very firm footing from which then we can go and try to find other resources to do more. So, Elizabeth, you know, many of our listeners will be with children's advocacy centers who understand the problem of child sexual abuse very well, but some of our listeners won't, and they may not understand what, you know, the the scope of the problem. So just for a general audience, can you talk a little bit about how big is the problem of childhood sexual abuse? Is it truly an epidemic, a public health epidemic or public health crisis? Yeah, I think it is absolutely a problem that affects far more children than um, than other very serious public health problems that, that frankly are a much stronger focus of the federal government. Uh, you know, um, things like HIV, which of course um, uh, is, you know, has lifelong consequences and, and can be deadly. Um, we put a lot of resources as we should. I'm not advocating to change that. Um, but, you know, when it comes to child sexual abuse, what we know from uh, good survey research that's uh, conducted by David Finkelhor and his colleagues and others is that somewhere between maybe around 15 to 20 percent of girls and maybe 5 to 10 percent of boys in the United States are affected by child sexual abuse. And so, uh, and that, and child sexual abuse, um, the definition of child sexual abuse is broad uh, and includes um, sexual behaviors by somebody who is older or in a position of authority over a child um, and behaviors for which a child cannot consent by virtue of age uh, primarily. Um, so, you know, unlike in the case of adults, there, there does not necessarily need to be aggression to, to define an act as, as a sexually abusive act when committed against a child. Um, so, so we have uh, something that affects, again, somewhere between you know, depending on the data that you look at, around 15 to 20 percent of girls and 5 to 10 percent of boys and 12 percent of children worldwide. And so this is certainly a global public health problem, not not only a national public health problem. What we do not know, because we have no good survey data on, is how many individuals engage in these behaviors. And, and we are hoping to um, work with the CDC to to begin to add items to uh, international surveys and maybe one day national surveys, but at least international surveys that would get at the scope of how many people have sexual attraction to children and, uh, you know, whether you're attracted to children or not, how many people have engaged in sexual behavior with children. We, we need much more information on the scope of these uh, risk factors and risk behaviors. Um, and we, we absolutely do not have that information right now. 
So when you think about a problem that has this scope and really affects so many children and therefore so many adult survivors, that must have a tremendous economic burden um, on the U.S. economy and that globally. And I think you've done some work there, haven't you? Yeah, in, in collaboration with um, Jim Mercy at the CDC's Division of Violence Prevention, who's been a, a long-term uh, friend and, and partner and collaborator, and with uh, some health economists um, that have worked with Jim on an earlier project, um, Derek Brown and Jiaming Fang, and then one of my uh, master's students, who's a child psychiatrist, um, Ahmed Hassan, we did a an, epic, uh, an economic um, analysis of the, the economic burden of child sexual abuse. So looking at the impacts that child sexual ha- abuse has uh, uh, on victims across the life course, um, which can include things like, you know, the immediate harm and the need for mental and physical health services uh, to impact on behaviors that can increase uh, the risk for future um, disease and disability, the impact on school, the impact on employment. What we found is that annual, annually, the United States um, is losing about $9.3 billion uh, in costs that are directly attributable to child sexual abuse, which is a huge number. And then per per person who has experienced child sexual abuse, um, so for each survivor, uh, relative and in comparison to, to people who have not experienced child sexual abuse, they're going to um, lose about $283,000 across their own life course. And so the cost um, of child sexual abuse are understandably um, high, and they extend, um, you know, all the way through uh, the life course of the of the individual who's been victimized. So, when you think about the scope of this problem, both in terms of the numbers of people affected and in terms of the economic burden, do you think that we're really treating it like a public health crisis or a public health problem? We are definitely not treating child sexual abuse like a public health problem. What we treat child sexual abuse like primarily is a criminal justice problem. And um, so so when we address child sexual abuse in this country, we really do it after the fact. And we put some resources into victim services and treatment, not nearly enough, I would argue. Um, but where a lot of resources go um, are, is to uh, punishment. And so I can give you a couple numbers just so just so listeners can get a, an understanding of the scope of the resources that we put into child sexual abuse after the fact. Um, right now, there's about 166,000 people in state prisons for sex offense crimes. Um, the per person per year cost of prison varies by state, but it's between about $32,000 to $60,000. Um, so what this means is that when you when you do some pretty simple math, um, is that as a nation we're spending uh, between four billion and ten billion dollars every single year to lock up sex offenders. Um, I can tell you we are not spending anything like that on prevention. There is no there's no federal funding agency that has the prevention of child sexual abuse as part of its core mandate that that actually is able to fund that part of its mandate. Um, so we actually, one of our efforts at the Moore Center that I direct, the Moore Center for the Prevention of Child Sexual Abuse, is we are working with partners to try to get the federal government to give the CDC's Division of Violence Prevention $10 million in new funding, not to take it from somewhere else, but in new dollars that would go towards um, child sexual abuse prevention research. So $10 million a year is what we're asking, again, 
At the state level, we spend between four and ten billion a year just on locking people up. At the federal level, I'll also just say there's about 16,000 people incarcerated in federal prisons for sex offenses. We spend $512 million per year, so half a billion dollars per year, locking up people in federal prisons for sex offenses. We're asking for $10 million uh, for prevention uh, funding at the federal level, which I think is uh, we had a lot of bipartisan support in both houses of Congress for this, and so we sincerely hope that that we get um, we get to add this to this year's budget. We'll see. Yeah, and we signed your support letter for that, and are you know wholeheartedly endorsing that. But does it surprise you, even with bipartisan support, what a heavy lift it is to try to obtain ten million new dollars for this work? You know, it, it it really does, although I have been very heartened. I started this about five years ago, and five years ago there was zero, zero interest in advancing this. And so things seem to have changed, and I think part of what's changed, uh, we can attribute to the hashtag MeToo movement. Um, I think we can attribute it to good reporting on uh, scandals where offenders were identified who should have been identified decades earlier. I think we can attribute to a heightened understanding um of the consequences of child sexual abuse. And again, when I say better reporting, reporting where we recognize, you know, these are people who often are, are in our in our families, they're in our communities. These are things we should have seen and we and we should have been able to address. Um, and so, um, you know, I think several things have changed. Um, so I, I do really appreciate the support that we're getting um, from all the many staffers and uh, congressmen and senators that we're meeting with and hope that we can move it along. And we really appreciate your organization signing on. And, and we, had, we had about 25 other organizations that were willing to do that as well. Um, we, we'll see if we get to the finish line this year. Um, when, you, when you compare the $10 million ask to the $512 million that we already invest just in imprisonment at the federal level, it seems like an easy call. Um, but, um, you know, adding dollars to the federal um, budget is, is I, as I understand it, never very easy. So let's talk a little bit about the progress made um, in terms of child sexual abuse prevention over the last, you know, 20 or so years. When I started my own career, I actually started it um, on the prevention side of things. And as you know now, I'm, I'm more on the intervention side of things, although CACs are doing more and more prevention work. But when I think back to some of the things that I was doing at the time when I started, I can't say that all of those were a great idea. You know, for example, 20 years ago, we thought it was brilliant to teach kids to, you know, tell adults no. And um, a lot of body safety training really um, was focused in that way. A lot of child sexual abuse um, prevention efforts were focused in that way. And we really know a lot now about the fact that those are Many of those are largely ineffective. And so when you think about where the field has come over the last 20 or so years, what have we learned that works? And what have we learned that you'd say, say if someone's still doing that, they need to stop today? <laughs> um, stranger danger, which was still being done in uh, Maryland public schools a couple of years ago, is something that should be stopped today. Beyond that, I would say what, what I'm most struck by is how we are still doing the things that we know are insufficient. And so 
Uh, you, certainly, you know, Teresa, that uh, many states have implemented laws that re- that now require schools to include child sexual abuse prevention programming. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Those laws, you know, they're they're named after someone who was a victim who is very good at getting um, the attention of of policymakers who certainly want to do something about child sexual abuse. Unfortunately, what schools have um, ended up implementing is that that old. Uh, teaching kids the, the three R's of recognize, resist, and report sexual abuse. Um, you know, and, and if you think about the comparison, do we ask kids to recognize, resist, and report child physical abuse, that would be laughable. Um, we don't do that. Uh, I'm not saying that these programs are laughable. When they are implemented well, they can have some positive benefits, including uh, encouraging disclosure of ongoing abuse and reducing um self-blame if one does experience abuse at a later point. Um, you know, th- there can be some good that comes out of these programs, but what they they definitely have not been shown to do is actually reduce the risk of a child experiencing sexual self-victimization. Um, so it's, it's a little maddening that 30 years on, we actually are still most likely to do what we were doing back then. Mm. And that's because child sexual abuse has not been included in national prevention programming. We have 30 years of great research on child physical abuse and neglect prevention. And so we have home visiting programs that are highly effective. We have a host of programs, early intervention programs that are very effective at addressing um, the risk of parental physical abuse or neglect. We've got good research on bullying programs in, in schools, good research on adolescent suicide prevention. We've got 30 years of research that supports a public health approach to violence prevention for every kind of violence except child sexual abuse. So that's remarkably frustrating, and that, I think, stems directly from having no federal resources going into this, so of course you don't get much out of it. Now, that said, there, ha- there are some bright spots, and there have been a couple of validated uh, prevention programs that target um, kids' sexual harassment and sexual violence behavior with each other. Uh, one of those is called Safe Dates, and many of your listeners might be familiar with Safe Dates. The other is called Shifting Boundaries. And both of these target middle school kids. Um, Shifting Boundaries is a program that, that, in my experience, many people are unaware of. It's very well validated and does an excellent job of getting schools to enact school-wide changes that reduce harm, like, for example, posting adults in the hot spots where bad behavior is likely to occur, like behind that dark stairwell during class changes, right? Um, as well as it has a curricula that explains to kids what the laws are, what consent is, and those sorts of fundamental um, bits of information. My center has a small grant from the National Institutes of Health to um, validate a school-based program, also that focuses on sixth and seventh graders, but that focuses on reducing the likelihood that they will in, um, involve a younger child in mm. own sexual explorations. Um, we did that. Uh, we we developed this program, which we're currently testing in a randomized controlled trial here in Baltimore. Um, because uh, the peak age for involving a younger child in inappropriate or harmful or illegal sexual behavior is the age of 14. So not, you know, not 24 or 34 or 44, but 14-year-olds. And we think it's because kids, when they're 12 and 13 and 14, they're just becoming sexual. They're just learning these complex new sexual and dating and romantic behaviors, and they don't have a roadmap. Um, and so they're likely, they're very vulnerable to making mistakes and making bad choices, uh, just like they are when they start driving. Um, complex behavior, not a lot of guidance. And unlike with driving, we don't give classes in this, right? Uh, and parents often have a hard time talking about it. 
Um, so we, we developed an intervention that is very straightforward for kids and their parents to really talk about the context in which these these behaviors happen, why they're harmful to the younger kids, how they can be harmful to the to the older kids, and how to avoid them and how to report them if they if they know they're happening. So when you think about the work of children's advocacy centers, last year, you know, they had more than 2 million prevention contacts. Um, And the fact that often schools do reach out to them and ask for programming or ask for advice about programming, where do you think that children's advocacy centers should be maximizing their own time and resources in doing prevention work? Well, first of all, I think it's wonderful that they are doing prevention work. And that is absolutely, it's just marvelous. I think there's a couple of of points here. Uh, one is, you know, we know that most children who have been sexually abused will not go on to sexually abuse another person. That said, it is the single biggest risk factor, a history of sexual abuse victimization as a child, is the single biggest, biggest risk factor that the child, particularly for boys, will go on to engage in harmful sexual behavior. And so taking well-validated uh, treatment interventions that address the sequela of abuse, like cognitive behavior, um, uh, 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 I'm blanking on the name, uh, trauma-focused CBT, trauma yeah. cognitive behavior therapy, or other well-validated interventions, and making sure that they either already ameliorate that that relationship between victimization and, and future uh, harmful behavior or beefing them up so that they do and then testing that, you know, in a well-validated way would be is one is one place that I think um, child advocacy centers can be absolutely crucial to reducing the risk. And then, um, you know, offering uh, standalone prevention programming. You know, again, there are some standalone programs that have been shown to be effective with middle school um, aged children. I don't know about working with younger children around specific child sexual abuse prevention. I think more whole child uh, um, interventions that focus on, you know, positive behavioral learning uh, strategies with parents and kids uh, probably makes more sense for younger kids. Um, but I think supporting what the evidence base is, and as you are already doing, supporting the need for growing that evidence base so that we have interventions. I should also say that when we think about how to prevent public health problems, we have to move beyond just the individual child or the family level and really look at what can communities do and what can we do at the societal level? What are structural changes we can make? And I'll give one example of that if, if, um, if we Sure, have... please. So we have a grant now from the CDC to look at the impact of Medicaid expansion, which is Medicaid expansion is when, we, when states can elect to give more adults access to affordable health care. Is there a violence prevention effect of ensuring uh, affordable, good health care for adults? And there's some reasons to think that there might be, that, that you know, expanding good health care to adults might actually have a violence prevention effect. Um, we know that in states where there is Medicaid expansion, we see improved adult use of substance abuse services, improved adult use of mental health services, particularly for depression, um, and we see improved financial stability for families because medical debt is one of the major destabilizing factors in family in family mm-hmm. finances in our country. And we also know that substance use, mental health problems, and financial instability are all risk factors for violence, for for virtually every kind of violence, intimate partner violence, youth violence, and family violence. Uh, And so we're going to use national level data sets 
uh, like data sets of substantiated cases of child sexual or physical abuse neglect, as well as other data sets of intimate partner violence and youth and youth vi or youth violence, to see do we see a direct effect on on violence, a preventative effect on violence of this? There may be other societal level levers that we can press to change violence, to prevent violence. Norms is another one of those. So when we have gender inequities that are that are reflected in our norms, when we have um, other inequities reflected in our norms, we suspect that that may contribute to violence as well, of course, and perhaps particularly to sexual violence. Um, and so there are there are things we can do at every level, the individual level, the family level, the community level, to strengthen communities, to make, make them uh, less tolerant of violence and, and, and to promote uh, good positive behavior, and then at the societal level as well. We need to be thinking broadly across all four of those levels and not just thinking, what can we do to get kids safer, to make their behavior safer? What can we do to get, to get families to act more safely? One of the things that you have brought up in a recurring way through the interview is something that has become a focus of NCA around youth with problematic sexual behaviors. And I think you know that for us, you know, we probably had 20 years of history where this wasn't necessarily an area in which we were um, involved very much. It was um, something where these kids might come to a CAC for an interview because they might be a victim themselves, but beyond that, services might not be provided at children's advocacy centers. In looking at our own data over the last decade or so, what we've seen is that our numbers really mirror federal um, data in regard to 20 to 30 percent of our cases every single year involve youth with problematic or harmful or um, abusive sexual behaviors. And because of that, we started thinking about um, incorporating interventions, evidence-based interventions in the work of CACs. And we've been on that journey now several years. And I'd say I have a long way to go in terms of getting the numbers of clinicians trained and um, PSB, CBT. But at any rate, you know, we've been down that journey. One of the things that surprised me tremendously is that there isn't a federal funding stream for service provision. If you really think about the numbers, even within the CAC world, this means that you know, eighty to ninety thousand kids every year are are victimized. And on the flip side of that, there's a child who also or a youth that needs services so that they can live healthy lives. You know, observing appropriate boundaries and those kinds of things. So when you think about the vastness of those numbers and the limited resources. I have to tell you, I was just completely and totally shocked that while there are dedicated funding streams for victims, we sort of beg, borrow, and steal money in order to serve youth with problematic sexual behaviors. Why is that? I mean, it's a compelling problem. It's a problem in every single community. And candidly, it's a problem in, you know, families and neighborhoods and schools and all of those things. Why is this just not getting the resources it deserves? Well, first, I want to say that it's, it is marvelous to see um, you and to see, well, to see child advocacy centers become partners. It is, it is absolutely a fantastic venue for, um, for providing services to kids and families. Um, that are characterized by problem sexual behaviors. And I've been to a child advocacy center that provides those services that's in um, in Albany, New York, and or Rensselaer County, actually, and they were just marvelous. Um, and I and I know <clears throat> the the group that's been really refining and evaluating um, interventions for youth with problem sexual behaviors, uh, Jane Solovsky and 
and her colleagues at the University of Oklahoma, and they're doing phenomenal work. And so that that has been um, really great to see that we we aren't quite so siloed in view, viewing a child as either a victim or offender, but recognizing that a lot of these kids are the same kids and have uh, you know have have real needs that that child advocacy centers can provide and can address uh, in in a in an I, I think just a really excellent way. Um, so that's been a that's been a, a, a real positive change in the landscape this, um, over the last few years. I think we we do though tend to see people uh, who engage in harmful sexual behavior as 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 monsters, as the ultimate other, um, as people that we just really absolutely cannot identify with, cannot cannot fathom how they could be anything like us. And so we do everything we can to kind of keep them out keep them away. And this includes how we treat, um, you know, again, children under the age of 18 who have engaged in these behaviors. And so, again, we, we view this very much as a criminal justice issue. Um, if you think of someone as a monster, a monster behavior isn't preventable, it's not predictable. So, so it doesn't get included in prevention programming or even intervention programming. It really only gets addressed uh, uh, as a criminal justice problem through punishment. Um, and so that is, you know, that is simply where all of our resources go right now. Uh, I, I think the tide is beginning to turn. I think it's, I think it's going to take a long time before we have dedicated federal funding resources that go to, uh, treatment of people who are already engaged in these behaviors. Um, my hope is that, that won't follow too far behind prevention programming, um, and prevention research dollars. But it is, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it will require a fundamental shift in the way we think about child sexual abuse. Do we think about it as something that, um, we are good to go if, if we, if we respond after the fact, or do we think about this as something that it is imperative that we respond before the fact that we get a, get out in front of this and prevent it from happening in the first place? And right now we're quite complacent to, to respond after the fact, and we respond with everything we can. There's not just prison, there's registration notification, there's residence restrictions, employment restrictions, education restrictions, 21 states and the federal government run sex offender civil commitment programs. Those programs cost between $150,000 and $280,000 per person per year. The amount of money that we put into an individual who's already offended is astronomical. And if we could just begin to shift some of that towards treatment and towards prevention, um, I think we would we would be able to do a lot more in terms of shifting the needle and really reducing the rates of of this of this public health problem. Well, and it feels to me like we have shifted in some ways onto nonprofits and um, and universities for that matter. Essentially, um, the need to solve a problem that really can only be solved at, at federal scale. Um, so, you know, our challenge, I think, is to join you and other allies in terms of advocating for additional dollars, not only for research, but also for effective programming in this in this space, because the two, I think, go hand in glove. Which, speaking of federal policies, when you, when you think about, I mean, you know, there's so many, so, so many things we could recommend uh, to policymakers on the Hill. But when you think about the top three federal policy shifts that you would like to see, that you think would be most impactful in reducing um, childhood sexual abuse. What are those? Whoa, you are really putting me on the spot. <laughs> um, That's my job. Oh, my gosh. Um, I think it is 
and I think I've made this clear and you have too, it is fundamental to building the capacity for uh, developing testing and then disseminating effective prevention programs that we have clear, dedicated funding streams for that work. Um, that is how we got to addressing tobacco as a public health problem. That is how we got to addressing automobile crashes as a public health problem. Um, these started with grassroots efforts, but until federal government brought its weight to bear and said, we we do not, we no longer are content with operating as if, you know, 15% of girls and 5% of boys uh, can be sexually abused and we're fine with that. We, we are not fine with that. We have got to lower those numbers. Um, whatever the, you know, whatever the numbers are, we, we are not complacent with these numbers. This is not, this is no longer the cost of doing business in the United States. We are going to use these numbers. When the, when the federal government decides to make this a priority and to bring real resources to it is when I believe we will see real reductions begin to happen. Um, and, and this is a responsibility that, that, that I think has been shifted and, and left to individual families and to communities and to organizations such as yours. Um, you know, the idea that a good part of the prevention research that's being done in this country is being done because one family decided to fund it is is ridiculous it's and it's unsustainable so we've got to bring those resources to bear um you know you asked for three things mm -hmm. <laughs> maybe that's just one one and one right i mean i've been pretty focused on one thing i will say something else though um you know i believe that we absolutely do need to continue to address child sexual abuse as a criminal justice problem as we do with child physical abuse as we do with with rape as we do with other forms of violence, I don't, I absolutely would not recommend that we remove that. However, I would recommend that we stop relying on failed policy. And I mentioned that, um, you know, I've done research now for, for um, 15 years, more than 15 years now, that shows that sex offender registration and notification are just simply failed policies. They are particularly failed when we apply them to children, when, when, when people under the age of 18 are subjected to registration and notification. These policies do nothing to reduce the likelihood of a future offense, which is actually rather low. Um, and we've identified, uh, our research has shown that these policies are, are associated with increased risk for suicide attempts by children, by children 12 to 17. That's how old the kids were in our study. Um, they were more likely to attempt suicide, and they were much more likely to be approached by adults for sex than kids who had also engaged in harmful sexual behavior but were not subjected to registration and notification. So this is a policy that not only fails to deliver on its main promise, which is to reduce sex offending, but it's associated with an increased risk for the very type of harm it's supposed to prevent. Kids who are registered were more likely to report having been approached by adults for sex than kids who are not registered. Um, so, you know, I, I would say the second thing is, is that um, – removing and, and pulling away from and ending counterproductive criminal justice policies is another key feature, you know, starting with sex offender registration and notification, and then looking at, you know, other policies that we know are harmful to children, um, but that we continue to engage in, like putting kids in prison. And that is, that is uh, another policy that's associated with a host of, you know, uh, um, negative outcomes for kids and, and with no real increase in community safety. So I think, um, you know, getting a strong, strong foundation, foundational 
putting uh, strong resources to prevention. And then also at the same time, perhaps, really looking at are there policies we could end? And, you know, maybe that's one place we shift the funds. Like I'm not – my my expertise is not in federal financing, so I, I would not begin to suggest to, to the federal government how to find the funding for prevention program, how to find the funding for treatment programming. But I do know that we've got some very, very expensive nationwide policies that don't work, and they cost money. And those are things that I would like to see um, get addressed as well. You know, we're your amen chorus on all of this because we really can't bake sale our way out of the problem of funding child sexual abuse prevention. So I just really appreciate the work that you're doing. I think the the research you're doing is so informative to us in the field, and we appreciate your partnership with this. And thank you so much for joining us, Elizabeth. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to One in Ten. We hope you'll tune in for the next episode where we'll talk to renowned writer and trainer Victor Veith about faith, trauma, and the problem of evil. For more information about National Children's Alliance and the work of Children's Advocacy Centers, visit our website at www.nationalchildrensalliance.org.